Hey, so one of the things I know I've made comments about in the past is that uh, <clears throat> kind of before, I guess, becoming what uh, one of my former students called a real pastor, uh, I was doing youth ministry for about a decade. And a lot of things in youth ministry, uh, not just kind of in terms of the way that I've kind of, that I kind of do things, but also in terms of uh, I guess a lot of the mentalities I have kind of are shaped a lot by doing those things in youth ministry because there's some interesting things when you're dealing with teens. Um, teens in some ways are not as easily uh, uh, are not as easily fleeced, I guess, as, as adults are. Um, they can tell when you're not being authentic and they can also tell when you're not trying to like we're not trying to relate to them. Uh, and I think that was kind of one of those things that you know, took a little bit of work on, on my end was something that uh, I tried to kind of bring into a lot of other facets of my life. When you're dealing with something that is as serious as a relationship with God, then it can't be something that you necessarily treat lightly. And it also can't be something that you just treat as kind of rhetoric. Um, because if something is so easily packaged up as just a bunch of rhetoric, then you have to ask if that's really something that's that's real. Um, cause you know, propaganda is pretty easy to see, you know, seeing somebody who's trying to sell you something is pretty transparent, but when it comes to something that's real, that actually impacts your life, it has to be conveyed in a way that it seems like it's real and that it seems like it's authentic. When you think about what it means to have God in your family, it doesn't really get any more authentic than that. Because the reality is that Kids and even, you know, other people in your family, siblings, parents, stuff, whatnot, when you see how somebody lives on a day-to-day -day basis, like you see how they get up and you see how they go to sleep and you see everything else in between, then you get a really good idea of what it means to actually have a relationship with God or vice versa. You get an idea of what it means to just hear a bunch of rhetoric and that is something that we say on Sundays but doesn't really impact anything else. And I think that's really, really important because there's one thing I can say when I look at the different teenagers that I saw kind of grow up and go through youth ministry, uh, I reflect on a statistic that I remember was kind of thrown out there. Uh, and when you look at all the students that will go through a youth ministry, whether it's at a church or a young life or something like that, the statistics are basically that about one out of 10 will stick with it. So between all of the different teenagers that you have out there, you can line 10 of them up, pick the one that's going to continue having a firm relationship with Christ. And, and that's kind of what ends up happening. Uh, when I think about those individuals, especially now this time of year, when you kind of, uh, you know, Meredith and I will sit here and look at people that like over the years, we kind of looked at as, you know, children and teens to grow up. And we're, we're hitting a point now where we're becoming more and more uh, aware that we're, we're not young people anymore because we're seeing the people that were once kids now graduating high school. And when we look at that, I can look at the individuals that you look at and you say like they stuck with it. Those were the one out of 10. And I'll say this, without exception, the individuals that stick with it are the ones that when you look at their homes, you can see that their parents actually lived out a relationship with Christ. Uh, not just in kind of what they did as far as their extracurriculars or whether they showed up, but in terms of like actually living out a relationship with God uh, and seeing it and how they act and how they talk and how they make decisions and everything else. This is kind of the way that I would put it to some individuals. You know, from time to time, I would have parents would come up to me and they would, they would have many, many comments to say about how important it was that 
you know, their children be in a good youth program and how it was really important that, you know, well, I, I need them to be in a good youth program because I need them to get Jesus. I need them to know who Jesus is. So it's really important that they have a church ministry. And a part of me looks at that and says, I wonder how we went through centuries of Christians and didn't have youth programs. And yet the church never died. I wonder how that happened. You know, the whole modern youth movement is really something that started and kind of like, eh, you could argue the 60s, but really didn't pick up steam until kind of into the 70s and the 80s with like the, the Jesus movement, you know. And I think what ha we have seen happen over time is, you know, subsequent uh, generations or, you know, in subsequent decades, people basically cede over their responsibility as a family to give their children Christ to a church. And a church is there to help you to learn, to help you to grow, to help to support. But the church isn't there to be the entirety of your relationship with Christ. It's exactly what we talk against, is that, you know, if the only time that you're living out Christ is when you show up on a Sunday morning or when you go to a Bible study or something, then do you really have Christ in your life? Do you have an authentic God that truly is powerful enough to, to control and influence every single thing you do, every word you say, and every action that you have? And if your God isn't that powerful, then why is he your God? So it, it begs the question, what is it that we're actually worshiping? If it is God, then it has to permeate every aspect of our lives. And that doesn't change when all of a sudden we're talking about people who are under the age of 18. You know, when we're talking about children and youth, it's the exact same way, that they have to be getting God in some other way. And so these are the ways that, you know, I, I would always kind of, you know, try addressing this or trying to put this into context. I would say, okay, I want you to think about, the week of what we're going to talk teenagers for a second. You know, we're going to talk about the, the week of a teenager. So the week of a teenager, uh, you have 168 hours, right? And fun fact, that's not just in the life of a teenager. That's in the life of all of us because that's how time works. So 168 hours a week, right? So of that roughly, these are rough averages, right? So if you're listening to this going like, well, my, you know, I know a teen that isn't this way. Okay. I don't care necessarily. These are averages. Uh, so on average, you have about 53 hours a week that are asleep. So that's a little less than a third, right? So a third of their time, they're sleeping, hopefully. We'll say sleeping or resting, we'll say. About 20% of that, a hair over that, is school, like in school, school, okay? So right there, you're already at about, you're already, a, you know, a bit over 50%, right? 50% sleep, school. So you have that. Uh, of that, you also have uh, a few hours in here for some things. You have some homework, you know, and projects, which takes a few hours a week. You have uh, things like sports and clubs and hobbies, which is like 11 hours, you know, something, something like that. Uh, you also have something like media. So we start talking about media, whether that is phones, television, gaming, something like that. That, for many teens on average, is somewhere just shy of 30 hours. So more time than they spend at school, they're spending on different forms of media. So you have that. You also have, you know, some time in here for, you know, eating and dining at home. Um, but by the time you get into this, you say, okay, well, I'm spending about 15% of my time sleeping, school, uh, have about 17% of my time there that's uh, doing, you know, consuming different types of media. Then if we relegate God to only being a God that exists inside of church, then what is church? Well, if we're being generous, then we would say that, you know, a big, let's talk about like traditional old school church program, right? The kind that we're talking about kind of came out of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, right? Then you're talking about, nah, let's call it two hours. Let's say you have a Sunday school hour, and let's say you have your big church hour. So let's call it two hours, okay? So we'll see if you got two hours here. It's two hours out of the 168. But then when you look at that, you have to say, right, but of that 
two hours, that two hours isn't really dedicated towards them, really, because we're talking about teenagers here, right? And I can tell you about teenagers in big churches, you know, teenagers are kind of sort of paying attention on Sunday mornings, you know, when it comes to Sunday school, you might get them to participate a little bit. Uh, and then they are maybe a little bit less than that paying attention in kind of big church. You do have some real good ones, but just saying by and large, it's not really made for them. We do a real good job of having things in church services for little, little kids. And then we have things for adults. The in-between kind of gets lost. And so we go, okay, what about youth groups? Cause we do have youth groups. And that's actually how I looked at the youth group that, uh, I was leading was that we had a lot of people who actually flat out would not show up on Sundays. Even people, members of the church where the parents were like, well, I don't want my kid to end up growing up resenting church and all that. So I don't, I don't force them to get up. Okay. We'll get to that. But. You know, uh, you know, so, okay, well, that being said, it means the only church they really get is youth group. Ours was an hour and a half, and we actually extended it to an hour and a half. So we had an hour and a half. So if I assume that that entire hour and a half from the start to the end was nothing but giving them Jesus, then that means that in their week, 0.8% of their week is giving them Jesus. Okay? Now, but then you also have to be more realistic than that. That point, that, that point, eight percent is not again cover to cover one and a half hours of just giving them jesus right they would zone out adults would zone out so that's not what that is in reality you have a lot of introductory stuff you have a lot of that relationship building which is so important in youth ministry so you have you know activities and games and stuff like that you do you know we try to put some praise and worship in there we made it like church for youth you know so you do all of that by the time you get into it you say well in reality i'm probably only really giving them Jesus for about half an hour. And so by the time you do that, now you're getting at about a third of 1%. So you have one third of 1% of a teenager's week that many of these parents that were coming up to me telling me how important it was that they have Jesus were actually giving their kids Jesus. And so I guess that's where I have to go back to the question that's kind of posing in the beginning. How important is this God really? Is he important enough that he permeates every aspect of our lives or is he one third of one percent important the reality is that when you look at what it means to have a relationship with christ it means taking it seriously it means a lot of things in our own lives that we all know like yes i should be doing this i need to be better at you know doing these different things it means growing as an individual trying to act in a certain way and trying to react to things in the world a certain way. Well, teenagers are already having to wrestle with so many different things in their lives, much less when you deal with children who even cognitively are at like a different level as well. And so these individuals have many things. They're discovering the world at little ages or at bigger ages. And so asking them to do that and then to also struggle with the same things that we as adults struggle with when we're not also trying to figure out the world is it just seems like it's being a bit unreasonable at a certain point in time. This is why we see the Bible talk so much about, you know, the importance of us raising our kids and the importance of us giving that next generation uh, a relationship with God. I once again kind of go back to that, that, that kind of hypothetical question. How do we have so many generations of individuals go through and actually somehow have a relationship with God, have a relationship with Christ without having a youth group where they would go to a infuge camp every single week or a centrifuge, centrifuge, centrifuge kids summer camp without going to little conferences and all that. How, how did all of those children somehow get saved? Do we just have, you know, almost 2000 years of individuals who didn't, you know, really have a relationship with Christ and then someone who figured it out about 40 years ago? Or is it the case that something has broken down? 
that while it's kind of popular to talk about like moral decay and all that kind of stuff, so many of the different things we look at in our society that we feel like are wrong can so often be traced to the fact that our families have ceded their responsibility to actually be a family and not just be a family in that you cohabitate and not just be a family in that you kind of survive each other every single week and not just being a family in that you go and you do a couple vacations and things like that and you bring in, you know, a ledger sheet, money in, money out, but in that you actually have some certain common values, that you have certain things that you're actually teaching, that there is an education component of what you do with your kids, that there is, you know, a support aspect of what we do with other children that maybe are not ours biologically, but that we have a responsibility for. This entire time I go through and I talk about parents, but the reality is that this entire thing applies, especially in our society, where so many parents have ceded their parental obligations to others. We all have a responsibility in different capacities to be the parents in the lives of these kids, whether it's being a teacher, whether it's being a mentor or whatever it is. So many of us have these obligations and a critical component of that, if our God is truly who we say he is, is giving these children more than one third of 1% of their weeks to understand who a Christ is that wants for them to have a fulfilled life. But yet you see so many proclaiming with their mouths that they love God and they love Jesus and they want the best for their kids, but yet they're not willing to do the smallest thing in order to give them the one thing that will provide for them the largest profit that they could possibly imagine. In Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4, we read Paul saying this about families. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children. What I like about this is that in so many different areas in the Bible where there's some kind of imperative, there's kind of a two-way street. And I really, really like this because, you know, the way that a lot of us tend to actually live out our relationship with God and the way that we like to kind of exhibit our our, our sense of religion is <clears throat> we tend to look at things in terms of <clears throat> there are things that God does, there are things that apply to me and things that apply to other people. But when it, when it comes to relationships between people, oftentimes the Bible will give us this kind of like back and forth. This is how the relationship works. And I really like that because <clears throat> it really lays out that there is an importance to the relationship here, not just the simply sending or receiving of commands, but that there's an obligation on both sides. You see that children need to be accountable to their parents, but then you also see that parents need to be accountable to their children. That's what I really like about this. You know, you could see this in other areas of the Bible when people will bring up the whole thing that says like, wives submit to your husbands, you know, and then a lot of people will, you know, like to make some kind of dumb joke right there about that. But, you know, they kind of stop and it's like, nope, keep reading the verses because then it turns around and says, but then husbands, you're supposed to unconditionally love your wives in the same way that Christ loves his church. And you see that happening right here as well, where it is saying, children, you need to obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother. But then you also see this, this tag on going in here too that says, fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So what does that actually mean? Well, you know, you can actually take that last part, that imperative to the parents, you know, where it says father, and you can break that down into two other things where it says, first of all, don't provoke your children. And the second thing is to instruct them. 
Both of those things are critically important. And I think when you think about individuals that want to think about their own relationship with their own parents, you know, especially people who may want to use that as kind of a, 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 a yeah, but kind of statement. Like, yeah, but I can tell you that that's not always the case because maybe I didn't have great parents or maybe my parents weren't really big Christians or maybe my parents this or that. Okay, well, you know what? There's a solution for that in here as well, because you look at it and you say, parents, you're not supposed to provoke your children. And what does provoke actually mean? Well, one of the things that I really like in here is the way that uh, one of the commentators that I was studying kind of puts it. He describes that word provoke and puts it this way. He says, don't cause exasperation produced by arbitrary and unsympathetic rule. I think about, you know, something that I would say both in youth ministry and uh, something I've said kind of other contexts as well, which is, you know, I'll, I'll turn around and I would look at the students and I'd say that don't fool yourselves into thinking this is a democracy. This is not a democracy. This is a benevolent dictatorship. And that's kind of the way that I'd word it. This is a benevolent dictatorship. It's a di- dictatorship, but don't worry. It's like a, like a happy dictatorship. And the, in a sense, that's kind of what you're being called to be here, where it's, you know, looking at it and saying that you are to instruct, you are to correct. And we'll look here in a second at how Paul actually exhibits that a little bit to the church in Corinth. But you're supposed to do so in a way that has love and that has compassion and that is not being done arbitrary or not being done in a way that is unsympathetic. You know, that that idea of, you know, well, you should do X, Y, Z. Well, why should I do X, Y, Z? Because I said so. Well, you know, there may or may not be a time and a place for, you know, something like that. I'm sure that when Phoebe has asked me something 5,000 times and I've told her, like, eventually I just got, just do it, you know, right? This is the same thing. But, you know, actually having some degree of understanding for your children, you know, having an idea of like, well, you know, okay, what, why are they pushing back against this? Why don't they understand Christ? Why is it hard for them to understand who God is? And then kind of talking to them at where the place that they are becomes an important aspect of this. Because otherwise, you run the risk of not having a church or a pastor or a youth worker or anything like that give your kids a resentment of God, but instead you can actually give your children a resentment of God. If we end up having individuals that are parents that are sitting here saying, I go to church, or we'll even say not even parents. If you have aunts and uncles that are big Christians, if you have teachers that are people who, you know, people know like, oh, they're really active in all the, the Christian organizations and everything. But yet those same children look at your treatment of them and their friends, and they see something that's inherently ungodlike, then we are provoking those children to anger. And in doing that, we are driving them away from the truth that we want them to have. So there is an imperative there that we have to not provoke these children, these teens, these students in our lives to acting in a way that we feel like is going to come back on their impressions of God. While God doesn't need defending, God will speak to whoever he needs to speak to. We want to be able to be a part of that blessing of having the opportunity to share Christ in the lives of other people. And so in doing that, we have to guard our actions and we have to ensure that we have a level of discernment of being who it is Christ is asking us to be, not just for our own benefit so that we won't lose out on some of the blessings of life, but so that those other individuals who look up to us as role models and as mentors and as examples can look and say, you know what? I look at their life and their words were confusing, but I get it when I look at their life. That is how we can reach so many people. The other aspect of this that I really like is this uh, idea of instructing. This idea of not compromising the fact that there is a degree of truth that has to be told. 
but then also pairing that with this sense of love and compassion of meeting people where they are. And so I want to look at how Paul actually describes himself in kind of a fatherly light and look at how he does things. So if you go to 1 Corinthians and then go to chapter 4. So 1 Corinthians 4, starting at verse 14. Then we end up seeing this. Paul talking to the church in Corinth. I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. For you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in my church. Now, you can take this thing and you can look at some of the facets of how Paul breaks down this like fatherly relationship. And I think it's crazy the, the way you can take this and immediately see how it, it comes into contact with our own lives and how we deal with these kind of young people in various forms and shapes and relationships that we have. In that first verse, in verse 14, we see, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you. This idea that something could be interpreted in a negative light, but I'm going to still give this to you because I, I love you and I want to warn you. There's, you know, an organization that I'm in that, uh, you know, one of the little phrases that they'll kind of use in some of their little ceremonies and stuff is they'll talk about uh, whispering good counsel in somebody's ear to ward off approaching danger. And I really like that because that, that really in so many ways is what we're doing with children is, you know, we're trying to teach them about things because we want to warn them, right? When my son Ezra wants to go up and he wants to stick his hand in things all the time. I'm sitting here swatting it away half the time because he's digging in a plant and I don't want to clean up a bunch of dirt. And the other half of the time because he's about to do something that could potentially hurt him, right? He's sitting here and he's standing up in his chair and I'm looking at like the distance from there to the ground going, don't stand up in your chair or something like that, you know? So I'm getting on him and I know he doesn't like it. There's been a few times where I have to do like the dad voice, right? You know, and you got to put on your big boy pants and do your dad voice and everything. And then he gets you that big old like, Literally, it's like in a cartoon. He pulls his lip like all the way down, big old balled up thing. You just got a, you know, sourest looking face. And he's so upset, but I'm not doing it because I want to antagonize him. I'm not doing it because I want to provoke him. I'm doing it because I love him and I want him to be safe and I want him to stay away from this danger. Then in the same way, every single time I would hear a parent say something like that and say, well, you know, I just don't want my kid to resent God. I would look at it and say, would it be better if they sit here and have to go through all the pain and hurt and heartache that a, a life apart from Christ can lead to? Would that be better for them? Would it be better if I sat here and said, well, I don't want, I don't want Ezra to, to, have a bad feeling about sitting in chairs, would it be better for him to fall down and smash his head on the floor? That wouldn't be better at all. I want him to stay away from that. So I want to prevent him from hurting himself. Then the same way, we have to want to give these lessons, give this truth to our children with the confidence of knowing that if what we are giving them is love and truth, then time and experience will bear out the fruit of whatever it is we're doing. That will overcome whatever concern we may have in the short term for this little temporary frustration or this temporary sense of upset or this this temporary denial of a thing or an opportunity that they want because we know that there's something better for them. So that's the first thing I see in here is what's there in verse 14. You go just into the next verse, into verse 15, and you see, for you have many countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. I would point back to some of those numbers when it comes to how much time students are spending each week on different things. 
How much time do you really have just as, as individuals in your own lives to work with your children? How much time do you have to work with your, with your grandchildren or your students or something like that? Compare that to every other facet of their life. I mean, when we were looking at these and I was shocked at some of them too, I mean, by the time you put like weekends and things like that in there, you end up saying, you know, students are taking on average more time when it comes to media of various forms than they even are in school. So you look at that and you say, who's influencing your children? If we're only going to give one third of 1% of the time of our kids to learning about the God who wants more for them, but we're perfectly willing to permit them to spend a quarter of their time on some kind of media being influenced by other individuals, then who is giving them a form of truth? Is it their peers? Is it celebrities? Is it community and political leaders? Are these things that we revere more highly than the word and the truth and the wisdom that comes from God? Sadly, when you kind of look at the actions, even though none of us, I don't think any of us would sit here and say, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly how I want it to be. You look at the actions that we, we take and the ways that we are working in the lives of these kids that we have influence over. And that is precisely the image that we're putting forth. Now, I want to kind of take a little pause and just kind of make certain that I'm being very clear that I'm not trying to imply that hours doing a thing is equal to what's important. But I am saying that that's a pretty good indicator, just kind of rough order of magnitude of where it is we really find our treasure, what the things are that we truly worship in our life. If we're going to sit here and make time for certain things, but then we're not going to make time for other things, well, there you go. You kind of know what your priorities are. And the same thing applies when we have influence over the schedules and over the priorities of children. You know, uh, once again, that happens in so many different ways. I mean, whether it comes with like the neighbor's kid or something like that, you know, in the ways that, you know, we choose to interact with these, these impressionable people, this next generation that's coming up, they can see what we value when they look at the things that we focus on the most. And when that thing that we focus on the most is the latest thing that we heard on Fox News, or the latest thing that we heard on MSNBC, or the latest thing that we saw somebody share on Facebook, or something going on in our community, or gossip, or sports, or whatever it is, when those are the things that take number one priority in our life, then our kids know what's truly important. And subsequently, they know what can be put on the back burner. And so often, one out of 10, we end up saying for those nine out of 10 kids, they see that God's a side burner thing. God is something that can be put on the side. And sadly, so many of these individuals, many of them will end up coming back into their faith, will end up kind of coming back into the church and experiencing Christ, but not after a significant amount of hurt and heartbreak at some point in time in their life. Instead of experiencing the joy of a life continually growing and figuring out who it is God is building them to be, instead they have to come to Christ through hurt and heartache and instead experiencing Christ through the salvation and the salvation they can feel through overcoming their life's mistakes. And that's a glorious thing to be able to experience. But as parents, is that what we want for our kids? Do we want our kids to have to go through hell before they get to heaven? One of the third things that we see in here is we see Paul in verse 16. He says, I urge you to imitate me. We talked about this a little bit, but 
We have to be prepared to live lives in a way that people can see our relationship with God on us. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. We're absolutely not perfect. But it does mean reacting to the flaws in our lives and the flaws in our personalities and the things that we see around us in a way that we feel reflects what we see in the Bible. Does the Bible say I have to be perfect? No. But it says that whenever I do something wrong, I need to try to, I need to try to reconcile. I need to try to redeem, you know, seek some kind of redemption. I need to lean on the cross. I need to rely on my faith when I go through trials and tribulations. When my kids look at me, are Phoebe and Ezra going to look at me and they're going to see an individual who relies on his own strength and his own ego and his own abilities? Or are they going to see an individual who is willing to look at the cross and say, I'm less, but God is enough, and God can do anything. And God can do anything in my life, He can do anything in your life. That is what I want for my children to be able to see in me, and that's what all of us should want to be able to see when it comes to our children in our lives. We want our children to look at the flaws they may encounter, whether they're part of the 1 out of 10 or the 9 out of 10, and we want them to be able to... To say, you know what, when I mess up, I don't have to get out of this on my own. When I sit here and I'm not enough, I don't have to be enough. When I sit here and I have other people who are standing against me, I don't have to win my own fights and I don't have to win my own wars. Because God is enough, God is strong enough, God can win, God can provide all of these things in my life that make me fulfilled. That's what I want my kids to think when they come into contact with troubles of this world that mommy and daddy are not there to help them through. And the only way to do that is to give them Christ. And so I'd go back to it again. How much is that worth it to you? Is it worth a third of 1% or is it worth something more? I think it's worth more. The last thing that we see here that we see uh, Paul talk about is this thing. I think this is, this is very, very, very counter to a lot of things in our life. Cause you know, everybody's real big on personal space, right? We're real big on individuality. We don't want to interfere with the lives of our kids too much. We don't want them to think we're being overbearing. None of us want to be a helicopter parent. But we end up seeing this. We see Paul say, this is why I've sent you, I've sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in, in church. Now, when you look at that, what I think is fascinating is seeing Paul influencing the influences in the lives of these people he describes as his children. There's this great sense that, you know, there is, you know, some degree of, you know, privacy. We need to let your kids, you know, have a degree of privacy and autonomy and stuff like that. Okay, I get it. I'm a pragmatic person. I, I understand that. I've seen it in the lives of all these teens and everything. Yeah, some, sometimes the whole like putting all the conditions around them in such a way that you kind of think like they can only come to one logical conclusion. Like that's the best way to do it. Now, when you do that, just know you're going to make the correct answer as obvious as humanly possible. And they will somehow inexplicably find the incorrect answer in every situation. That's how teenagers work. But still, you know, there's this idea that you know, we don't want to meddle in the affairs of our kids. Because if you do that, you know, well, again, I don't want my kids to resent me. Well, boy, I tell you what, your kids might end up resenting you if they get to the age of 30 or get to the age of 40 and they figure out, you know, my my parents knew better and they did absolutely nothing to nothing to help me out. That could lead to some resentment. That could lead to some deep resentment, a whole lot deeper than saying, you know what, I don't think we should be setting up play dates with that person. You know, or, or, you know, somehow getting involved in the influences that are going on in your life. You know, this goes into as well the things that your kids are involved in. 
you know, I sit here and I talk about the youth programs and all that. Look, I am not knocking children's and youth programs at all. I did it for 10 years. I didn't stop doing it because I thought it was a bad thing and think, oh, want is a fantastic thing. But sometimes I think what is actually the biggest benefit out of things like that are this right here, are actually contributing to the influences that are in the lives of your children. Not because those things are going to magically teach them Jesus, because again, one third of 1%, but is going to give them different social relationships in their lives of people that, you know, will build them up. Sure, different adults, but probably more importantly, different peers, other people that they'll see that are their own age that have this common set of ideals about what it means to have a life that looks very different than the rest of the world. You absolutely can interfere in the lives of your kids. That is one of those things that ever since before I was doing youth ministry, during it, when people say, well, you just don't understand because you don't have kids. And then now, I mean, I have kids. I mean, I can tell you already in the life of Phoebe, I can see that aspect of going like, oh, no, 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 no. We need to get these influences a little bit more away from your life because I can see these behaviors in you that are coming from these other influences. So we're going to guide you more in this direction over here. I feel like a lot of individuals who have a role to play in a child's life, it's like they're afraid to do something. And I don't know if this is a cultural thing. I don't know if it's based on some kind of weird PTSD of how we feel like we were wronged by different adults in our lives in the past. I don't know if it's just some kind of like sense of like adult individualism and then we just kind of project that onto our children and assume that they are the same way. But children are children. Even older children are still children. And they need help making the correct decisions when it comes to influences that are on their lives. And if we have the wisdom and we have the perspective to be able to help them to that end, then we owe it to them to try to surround them with that cloud of witnesses that is going to build them up, that is going to make their faith stronger, and is going to help them understand that, yes, you can live a happy, fulfilled life that is dedicated toward Christ without just being a complete and total outcast sitting over in the corner all the time. I think about the youth that were in the 9 out of 10. And there's no one thing that you can say, oh, if you just avoid this one thing, then you know what, You're, you'll have a good little kid. That, that's, that's not how it works. I mean, even in between our two kids that we've raised like pretty similarly, at the young age they're at, you can tell they're very, very different personalities, right? I mean, you know, y'all y'all have a litter at this point, you know? So, I mean, you know, but the kids all have like different personalities, right? And so the thing is like, there's always going to be that variance in everything. But one of the things that you can look at that, that seems to oftentimes be a trend are the other influences, the peer groups that those people had around them. People who were surrounded by others that there, it wasn't really a question. Of, co of course you have God in your life. Of course, you, of course you're going to have a relationship with Christ. Those individuals seem to not be so susceptible to all the lies that the world wants to tell them because they're around other people that it's just, it's just, a given. It's a given. Of course we have a relationship with God. Now, I always would encourage those kids to question things and to actually challenge, you know, their thoughts because once they get outside that that peer group, the world's going to challenge them. But the point is, while they're in those youngest most impressionable times of their life when they're trying to figure out so many other things about who they're going to be and and who they are and the things that they want to do and the things they like and all that, they're not having to also sit here and struggle with so many attacks from Satan on their life. Many individuals, many children, many teens don't have the benefit and the blessing of having that kind of support network around them.
And so for those that we have influence over that we can give that blessing, why would we not do that? Why would we not want to give them that extra benefit? So we talked about parents and parental type figures, you know, in, in all of their various forms. But what also about the children? Because that's one of the things that even if you're listening to this and either saying like, you know, okay, well, I don't, I don't really know if this resonates with me as much because I don't, I don't have much children or maybe my children are, are older or whatever the case may be. Uh, we are all children in some way, shape or form, right? Uh, so I was just talking to, to Sean about like a professor that I had who would, uh, he would wear like every single day these like dumb math shirts. And one day he had one that kind of looked like the, the Chick-fil-A, um, you know, cow writing, you know, where it's all spelled backwards and everything. It just said math is hard. Uh, this man was in his mid eighties and he wore jean shorts every day. Uh, he was an individual that my, my mother who also went to, went to NC state, uh, I came, came back from one of my first semesters and she said, well, tell me about, tell me about school. Tell me about, Oh, you have some math professors. Who are some of your math professors? That's what she took. And, uh, I said, well, I have this one. He's my calculus teacher and he's a uh, Dr. Stitzinger. And she literally like slams her hands on the table and said, Dr. Stitzinger is still there. He was an old man when I was there. Uh, and that was this old man who wore like the crazy t-shirts and everything. So I say that to say that growing up, is somewhat optional. Uh, you know, you can, you can be a child, uh, you know, in, in, you know, all the way up until the end and everything. But as a child, there are certain things that we also have to recognize about other people in our lives, different people who are parental type figures. I dare say that there have been people, even in my own life, I made the comment about how like Meredith and I are figuring out we're not, we're not the youngest people in the world anymore. Like we're figuring that out now. Well, like there've been people that I even know in my own place of work that I've looked at who were definitely not older than me that I was like, you know what? They have a lot of wisdom to share me. And they always kind of took on this kind of like weird pseudo parental role of this like little sliver of our lives. So how can we act as children in a way that is a godly way? Well, I would look at the life of Christ, you know, I'm gonna give you these references, but I'm not gonna, we're gonna sit here and like read the blocks. But I mean, you know, you look at the life of Christ and like Jesus Christ himself got an awful lot from his parents. This is Jesus Christ who got it, okay? So you look at Jesus Christ and clearly the easiest thing, he's here because of his parents, right? There's a certain biological component of that, but there's also the, you know, keeping him safe component, right? There's the keeping him safe, you know, what we see kind of like later on that, you know, the whole fling to Egypt and all that, that all that back and forth was happening because of Christ's parents. You know, God didn't just send a bunch of guardian angels down to go and like pick up Jesus and put him in a little holy cage until he was 18. Like he, you know, was was kept safe who was ushered and nurtured and all that you know by his parents uh he became in a, in a lot of ways you know who he was at least at an earthly level because of the things that his parents instilled on him one of the you know stories that we end up saying in like luke 2 is that story of jesus where he you know pops up at the temple right and he's caught like talking to the 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 scribes and the religious leaders and when he's doing that what's interesting is where you see those things and they're saying that joseph and mary went to the temple as they did like that was something where they just did that in other words Jesus grew up with Joseph and Mary, obviously selected because of their devotion to God. And these are individuals that didn't sit here and go like, well, we have the Son of God right here. We don't need to take him to church. No, they did the things. They did the festivals. They did the feasts. They did the observances. So they did exactly what we're talking about. They gave him the religion that through which 
Jesus kind of grew up experiencing and developing and kind of his spiritual, you know, the godly supernatural self. But then we also see even instances of Jesus's parents, in a sense, pushing him in a way that kind of moves him to start out his worldly ministry, which to me is the craziest thought. To think that Jesus, that Jesus Christ, who did all the Jesus Christ stuff in the Bible, that his entire ministry starts with this, you know, first, uh, his first miracle of turning water into wine. And if you recall, the whole reason why that happened was because Mary went up to Jesus and went, we need more wine. And then, you know, when Jesus turns around and tells his mother and says, don't you know, my time hasn't come yet. Think about what that means. The only reason why Jesus would have said that is because Mary knew who Jesus was. And Mary knew what Jesus was capable of. And so Mary is sitting here going to Jesus, going like, well, time for you to do Jesus stuff. And, you know, uh, Jesus going, uh, it's not my time yet. And then what does she do? Does she argue with him? No. She goes over to the servants and goes, hey, do whatever he says. And then walks off because she knew what was up. And she knew what was going to happen. You know, there's like a deeper study you can do of that story. And it's kind of fascinating and actually very funny uh, uh, lesson when you kind of get into all that. But what you can see is that Jesus's parents played this crucial part of his life, even to the point that Mary is still hanging around all the way through his crucifixion. And Christ is obviously still regarding her in very high esteem. So you can see that being a child clearly means something when it comes to being your parents, because I would posit this. Jesus Christ was, you know, Jesus. He was perfect. He didn't do any flaws. He didn't do any wrongs. He wasn't guilty of anything. Even Jesus was obedient to his parents. Even Jesus had benefit that he could get from his parents. And so us too have benefit that we can get from honoring our parents or the parental figures that God has placed in our lives. Now, when I go through this, when I was putting together the thing for the people in the home church, one of the phrases I kept using is I kept saying parental figures instead of parents. And I kept saying that because I know that just as there's been a lot of breakdown in family units and all that kind of stuff, that there are many people who don't have such rosy thoughts about their own parents. But the reality is that that is not really something that's a factor in this equation. You know, there's a sense of honor that you still give to these parental people that are in your lives. Glean the wisdom that you can get off those who have wisdom to offer, you know. But for those that God has placed over you, for those people that God has put as influences in your life, take them for what they are. You know, the struggles may be there. They may be something that we have to endure. There may be trials that we have to go through. But even through those things, there's something that we can learn from it. When I think about a father not being such a great father, one of the things that for some reason my mind goes to is I keep going back to Noah. Because after you get the ark, so I'm vaguely familiar with Noah, right? You got Noah, ark, water, everything, uh, rainbow, and then they're off the ark and they're re recreating everything, right? So you have kind of that after effect. Well, in the afterwards part that happens at the end of Genesis 9, you end up seeing this interaction where Noah uh, doesn't act like such a good father. And maybe even something that many individuals that, that are, you know, here or at home church or whatever, maybe even can relate to, because this is what you end up seeing. Genesis 9, verses 18 through 27. Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Sham, Ham, and Japheth. 
Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were Noah's sons, and from the whole earth was populated. Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside of his tent. So you have him sit here, laid out, completely drunk, just kind of open to the world. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Then Sham and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over his shoulders, and walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. Now, in here, you can see two very different responses. You can see uh, Ham, the father of Canaan, turning around and seeing this, seeing their father's disgraceful state and turning around and making a spectacle of it. You know, wanting to tell their brothers, you know, not taking any action to honor or anything like that, but taking the approach of saying, like, this is funny, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to dishonor my father. But then you see the other brothers doing the exact opposite. Sham and Japheth coming in, covering him up, and then it says actually even walking out in such a way that they would not sit here and disgrace their father. Didn't mean their father had done the right thing. Didn't mean that he wasn't without some kind of, you know, sin in his life in that moment. But it was to say that there was a sense of honor about who this person was and this role that God had chosen for this person to play in their lives. So we keep reading it. It says, verse 24, when Noah awoke uh, from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done with him, he said, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brother. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Sham, let Canaan, Sham's slave, uh, let God extend Japheth, let Japheth dwell in the tents of Sham, let Canaan be Shem's slave. So what you end up seeing in this is this sense of blessing that comes from having a sense of honor for your parents, for individuals in your life that God has placed over you. And I think that the biggest thing for us to take away from these types of stories when we think about our own lives is that, you know, there is a sense of the unknown, a sense of wonder when it comes to what God is doing on this earth. That's something that I think most of us, if we're believers, are kind of on board with. There are many things in this world that we do not understand. We also understand that through our trials and through our tribulations, oftentimes we find ourselves on the back end of that challenging ourselves and sometimes even understanding Christ's grace and Christ's love even more in our lives. Sometimes through the different trials we go through and the things that we have to endure, we even end up understanding on the back end exactly the manifold blessing and grace that God has given us, uh, comparing that with the bad times that we had to go through. So that's not to sit here and say that there's something inherently good in the bad, but that we see how God can use things that are negatives in our life in order to bring us to a much more glorious state. And in the same way, we as children may look at people who are parental figures in our lives or look at people who are, uh, you know, uh, leaders. People have been put kind of over top of us in different ways. We may look at them and say they don't know what they're doing. They're not good people. They don't deserve this. They don't deserve that. But the reality is that we have to honor those individuals because God has permitted those individuals to be where they are for a reason. And whether those people are there because they are going to give us wisdom and give us discernment or whether they are there because through that trial and through that enduring, through whatever those individuals may be putting in our lives, we can grow to see him. God has a plan. And so it is a great sense of faith and understanding to take what God is doing in our lives and to hold that up on a pedestal regardless of what we may see in these different people. 
So taking this back to parents and kind of closing it out on, on our obligation. So I think that's what most of us kind of, kind of understand and kind of have to deal with. We have an opportunity to equip our children with a sense of eternity. And if you think about that, just like with equipping anybody with anything else, you can do it in a hasty manner. You can do it kind of half-heartedly, or you can actually take time. You can actually take it seriously. Take that obligation to equip your children as something that is going to be incredibly important and going to pay off tremendous dividends later on as they continue to grow and continue to go through different transitions in their life. We have to be willing to look at ourselves and be willing to look at how we raise our children and not just take it as an inconvenience and not just take it as something that is exhausting and not just take it as something that's frustrating and all the other things that we all know that raising children can be. Instead, we have to take our obligation to our children and treat it as highly as anything else in our lives. We have to understand that if God truly is the God that we say He is, then there is no earthly reason why we would not want to give that to somebody who is young and innocent and impressionable. There's no reason why we would want to deny those blessings to the next generation. So as we sit here and we think about our relationships with our kids, we have to look at the actions that we take as planting seeds. Every single time we do an action, every single time we say something, every single time we choose uh, where to set up priorities and where to spend our time, we're planting seeds of different crops that we think are important and that we think are going to benefit them down the road. And so the question is, what is the harvest that we think is going to come out of those seeds? Is it going to be a harvest of some, some good skills that they have? Is it going to be the, a harvest of you know some education, maybe some fun games that they played? Or are they going to have some a harvest that actually satisfies them for years and years and years into eternity. Ultimately, I think that's what we want from them. So we, for now, have to take heart of our mission to plant those godly seeds in their life so that they can reap a harvest of salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this. Thank you for this message that that you give us. We pray that you would help us to to have the patience, help us to have the, the clarity of mind and the energy to, to be able to, to teach our children, to teach our grandchildren, to teach our aunts and nephews, to teach our students, all our, our neighbors, all the people in our lives that you've given us the ability to be able to influence. Help us to not just sit here and look at an individual and say, well, because that person isn't, isn't my child, they're not my responsibility, you know, and help us to not... Um, you know, take kind of the convenient route of just kind of throwing our hands up and saying, well, it's just so hard in the world in which we live. Help us to truly make you a priority, not just in our own lives, but in the lives of the people that we can influence, the people that we can help grow so that they can grow up, not just knowing the things of this world, not just knowing some neat skills, not just knowing good education or, or fun games or whatever else it is that they're pursuing, but so that they can grow up knowing you and knowing that no matter what they face in this life, and no matter what this world throws at them, you will be there. And you will be with them through thick and thin. Help us to have this wisdom. Help us to have this discernment. Help us to be able to not just think about this and talk about this, but to actually apply it in our lives. We pray these things in your son's precious holy name. Amen.